1: Welcome to the Measure
0: Success Podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences.
1: Carl J. Cox here, and I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where I talk with top leaders about effective strategies that inspire success. This episode is brought to you by 40 Strategy. 40 Strategy works with CEOs and their leadership to reach their new destinations by learning how to maximize people, process, and systems as one effective team. If you want to learn more, please go to 40strategy.com. Before we introduce our guests, I'd like to do a shout out to Tommy Breedlove. Tommy is the author of Legendary, an extraordinary human being who's changing lives. Tommy and Trey are friends, and and anyways, I really appreciate him reaching out. And getting us connected, Tommy is has an incredible story. I encourage you to uh, read his book, and also you can listen to him on our podcast, or release back in September 2021. Now, talk about our guest, Trey Taylor. Trey is the CEO of Taylor Insurance Services, Managing Director of Trinity Blue Consulting, and founding partner of Ascend Partners. Trey is also the author of "A CEO Only Does Three Things." In 2013, Trey was named to one of Georgia Trend Magazine's 40 Under 40, frequently featured as a keynote speaker, he has addressed attendees of the Human Capital Institute, the Ascend Conference, and many other engagements. Trey has a law degree from Tulane University, has a B.A. in history from Emory University, and is in private time. Trey enjoys teaching introductory wine courses and is a WSET certified sommelier. He and his wife, Shea, have recently uh, founded Taiki Wines to produce and distribute interesting wines. Trey and Shea are the proud parents of Rhett and Emmeline and divide their time between Valdosta, Georgia and Ponte Vedra, uh, Florida. And with that, uh, Trey, welcome to the Measure Success podcast.
0: Carl, thanks so much. I love hearing my own bio being read back to me. It's wonderful.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have a very, very, we talked about this ahead of time. You have a very impressive bio, but we're going to talk a lot about that today. Why you get kicked off? What is Trinity Blue Consulting?
0: Yeah, Trinity Blue Consulting is a consultancy that we founded uh, several years ago. When I had a lot of peers in the insurance industry sort of approach me and say, "Hey, you run your company in a in a much different way than I run mine, and a much different way than we've seen others run theirs. And you know, could you give us some pointers? Could you do a deep dive with us? Could you facilitate strategic planning, Carl, much like you do? I know at Forty Strategy." and that sort of thing. And so we began really developing a base of knowledge that we found was transferable between uh, definitely people in the insurance uh, industry. And then uh, we were referred into lots of other industries as well. So we have a client in the uh, entertainment space. We have clients in the hospitality space. We have lots of real estate clients. We have a a PR consulting firm as a client, uh, a couple of law firms as clients as well. So the, the, base knowledge that we have is really transferable. And so that's what we do is we facilitate uh, a, a very different form of strategic planning. And then we do CEO level coaching to implement that strategic plan throughout the course of a 12 month period.
1: That's awesome. And I appreciate you sharing a little bit about how that got born. It got born effectively out of your success with your business that you have. Uh, meaning, meaning the insurance business. And through that, people were like, how do we, how can we do as good at that? So I love that, how it was basically founded on a premise that other people were seeing you're doing a great job. They wanted to emulate that. And then you had the confidence to go ahead and share it, right? Sometimes people yeah. want to keep that information within. It was like, I don't, I don't want to do that. Now let's right. just talk about that just for a minute. How did you get confidence where it was okay, if you made to share some of your secret sauce that you've developed over the years to some people who potentially could be your competitors?
0: So in the industry, we are uh, a little bit uh, picky about that. But what I have learned also is that, you know, I'm better than my competitors because I'm willing to do the things my competitors are not willing to do. And I could go next door to my biggest competitor and show them everything that we do. And they would look at it. I've had this conversation with some of them before. They would look at it and say, that's too much. I'm not going to do that. Right. That's going to take me off the golf course or that's going to take away time from the family or something of that nature. And so I'm less concerned about that than I was. But when I first started, I was a little concerned about it. So, so for example, my first client was in Athens, Ohio you know, because we're not going to share any, you know, competitive landscape with one another or that sort of thing. But since then, you know, we've, we've consulted in, I think it was 11 states all around and, and pretty close to home, a couple of occasions. I I live relatively close to Florida. And so I've got a couple of uh, clients in Florida and that sort of thing. Having said all of that, I really enjoy consulting outside of the industry because I get to learn a whole lot about a new, you know, a new industry or a new uh, w- way of approaching clients and that sort of thing. So literally I make, uh, you know, as many notes as probably I give out when I'm consulting with other clients as well. Yeah.
1: So you are, not only you have that, you have the managing partner for a family office, CEO of a course, insurance company, your speaker, a blogger, an author, a limited partner in seed and venture capital funds. Where do you spend most of your time today?
0: Carl, I bet I work less than anybody that you ever have on your podcast. I spend most of my time currently running the family office. And so we had three liquidity events, two good and one very bad for the family a couple of years ago. And so it it made a scenario where we had a lot of liquidity and you think maybe that's a great place to be, but then that money is just sort of sitting there and it's not being managed and it's being spent. And you know, those kinds of things. So we as a family came together, we, we now have four generations in the family office, we just onboarded our first a member of the fourth generation. And we agreed that we were going to take a single unified approach uh, to asset deployment, and return management. And so uh, it was my idea to do that. And then of course, who gets the job, but the guy that had the idea. So that's where a lot of my time has been this year is literally meeting after meeting, after meeting, looking at different investment opportunities and interviewing different uh, fund managers and those kinds of things and deploying that capital into the world. Now I can do that because I have staffed correctly in all of my other businesses. And, and, and I have management teams in those businesses who really handle things better than I probably ever did, but you know, we won't necessarily tell them that all the time
1: we'll just make sure we mute that right over that's there. right so I appreciate you sharing that so and and but that's an important part of you weren't able to get to there right until you developed the management team to actually be able to successfully get through that process and, and you described that a lot um, in your book so I'll, I'll once again mention the book the book is the CEO only does three things those are watching on YouTube they'll be able to see that right now excellent book I literally just finished it yesterday now for those this is being recorded on November 29th this was Thanksgiving weekend when I finished this up. This will probably be not get released for a few more weeks right before Christmas time. Sure, but sure. but with that, I think great principles. I love the simplicity. Uh, I think even wrote when you put in my book here, you know, find your folks. By the way, literally, I was on the airplane and somebody was looking the book. She kept on wanting to talk to me. And finally, I, I talked to her She said, oh, I was just getting ready to buy this book for my boyfriend. So, Trey, anyways, you at least have a oh, good. people who are looking take a look at that. That was pretty cool. That was like on Excellent. her list to be able to buy. Explain to our audience, what what are these three things that you think is so important for every CEO? Yeah,
0: I think, you know, CEOs look at that and say, yeah, right, I wish I could only do three things. And maybe the title should have been, uh, you know, a CEO should only do three things or something of that nature. But I wanted a little bit of a gut punch when somebody read the title so that they would have this, you know, reaction against the idea that they only do three things. But the, but the answer is that the CEO is the only person with enough perspective in the organization and authority in the, in the organization and responsibility to the organization to manage the three things that I think are most important for every business. And this is now after having literally looked at a, over a thousand business plans and consulted with a hundred businesses and those kinds of things. And those three things are culture, people, And numbers. Now, right out of the gate, it isn't that no one else in the organization can participate in those three things, right? Your HR manager is not going to quit because you read my book and you start handling all of the people function, quite the opposite. It's the CEO's job to set the agenda and determine the means of success for that agenda in culture, in people, and in numbers. And so it is a much better functioning organization if I go to my CEO and say, Here are the numbers that I want to see achieved through the entire year by the entire organization made up of people participating in a culture that produces the results that we want to see and getting CEOs to really lift their focus from the horizon up 5, 10, 15 degrees To focus on these three things over the very short period of time improves quality of life for every human involved around that CEO and that organization, but also improves the results, both hard and soft measured results for the organization. And so that's really been the mission is to get that message out and to sort of alleviate the pain that CEOs go through on a daily basis, largely self-inflicted uh, because we in- insist on touching things that really aren't ours to do. But that's really been the mission over the last year. That book has been out almost exactly uh, 13 months now. Yeah.
1: So what has been the response? What's the typical response from a CEO when he reads the book and he goes to you? He goes, you know, goes, what's their really kind of raw, guttural reaction when they go, wow, thank you for, writing, thank you for sharing with me. I didn't know this or I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, when they first pick the book up, it's like, this is a dream. You know, it's like the four-hour work week. Like, that's a dream. It could never be achieved, you know, that sort of thing. Largely, when people start finishing the book and that mindset begins changing and they start making changes in their daily work life, they begin to find lots more freedom. They begin to find lots more energy to put into projects that really matter. And they begin to find either that they have a team that is way more capable than they ever thought or they don't have a team capable enough to pick up the slack. And there are people changes sometimes that happen as well. It is largely an emotional journey for CEOs. I get notes from CEOs very often. I got a note about a month ago on LinkedIn from an Italian CEO, he's about 26 or 27 years old. And you know his hyperbole basically said, thank you for saving my life because wow. now I know what my job is in my company And, uh, you know, and I I will quit uh, terrorizing the rest of the people in the company, sort of paraphrasing there, you know, did I save his life? No, of course not. But, you know, his perception of it was I can now find the right sort of work-work balance inside of work, right? I know what to work on. I know what success looks like when I achieve that. And uh, it is a very fulfilling role to play for him. And that's a, you know, that's a great uh, place for me to be.
1: That has to be one of the most powerful things in the world, right? When you get that feedback from somebody unasked for, and they like, said, thank you, you know, thank you, especially globally, right? You, you didn't, I'm assuming you didn't go to Italy, right, to present this to them, but somehow they've got the book, now look at it, and, and now it's made a difference for them. I think that's absolutely inspirational. So there's some there's some tactics that you describe, or if you may, strategies on some of the how, on on creating the culture you and i have both had experiences historically where the core values that were listed were not real and true you know and and so you you go through this process to kind of vet it out and get to true authentic core values for an organization can you describe your audience a little bit about that process and and what really helps get it to be something that's consistent and authentic for them
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing to notice is that you have a culture, whether you built it or not, right? If it was intentional on your part as a CEO or it was a byproduct of the way that you put the team together and began to work and that sort of thing. And why is that? Because the culture is the uh, sort of unstated agreements that we have on how we are going to approach opportunities, failures, challenges, successes, all of those things, all of them deeply Unconscious between us, but this is how we're going to handle things. And it's the, you know, I like to say that the culture is the ethical environment in which we live, work, and play together. And so if that's the case, some people think of it as a fish tank, you know, and it's it, the, the culture is the water and what you put into the water and what, more importantly, often you take out of the water so that it's an environment that supports growth and beauty and calmness and all the things that you want to see when you glance at a fish tank, well, we want to have the same sort of feelings when it comes to having a culture. So I, I, I stress that right up front to, to say that a culture is an objectively discrete object. We can take that and work on it with intention. That's very important because some people think that you can't. And I, I strenuously disagree with that. So then the question becomes, okay, you know, smart mouth, how do you do that? Well, The way that you do it is be very intentional about values, because values are really what those agreements are about. Literally, these are the concepts, the emotion that we value as members of this group of people. And your values change, not uh, independently, but they change based on the uh, people that you participate with. So if I'm a board member of the local tennis association or country club or something of that nature, that group is going to value different behaviors potentially than if I'm a board member at the local bank or I'm a CEO of my own company or something of that nature. And I'm starting to really fool around with this idea, Carl, that I think that people found companies because they want to see their version of values at play in the world. Yes, there's a a monetary component to it, of course, but I really think if you talk to people that just threw their hands up with a Jerry Maguire moment, they're saying, I don't want to work, not for this jerk, but I don't want to work in this culture, in this ethical environment anymore, because these values aren't my values. And so uh, if we take that in, then it becomes incumbent upon us to really look and figure out what those values are and should be, okay? Okay. And so, uh, you know, I'm famous and I've probably bent your ear on this as well at looking at the Enron values, right? So Enron was the energy trading company that came about in the late uh, 90s, early 2000s. And, you know, the stock sort of went from $1 to, you know, thousands of dollars and things like that. And the, the book and the movie written about the company was called The Smartest Guys in the Room, you know, that sort of thing. And they had these gorgeous values of respect and integrity, a communication. Excellence at all times, and if you went to the Enron lobby, just off Wall Street, in their headquarters, you know they were they were in Houston, but they had a huge building in New York as well. In big gold letters, like gold leaf letters, engraved in marble in the in the lobby, were these you know really fabulous sort of value statements. And of course, that company was a hollow shell of what they said they did. They they paid lip service only to those values, and uh, when that company crashed. It really precipitated, along with a couple of other things, you know, precipitated a, uh, a recession in this country and worldwide even maybe because they took down Arthur Anderson. They took down a lot of faith in some Wall Street institutions as well, some governmental institutions and that sort of thing. And we've all sort of worked in companies that we think these people don't live these values. And so as a CEO, you really have to put time and effort into getting the values right. And so we have a process in the book that I'm happy to go into if you want to talk a little bit more about it. But how do you find those values? And then how do you, you know, go through the process of making sure everyone's on the same page with those values?
1: Yeah, it's it's um, for I think purpose of, of of the podcast, I, I'm gonna encourage people to go to the podcast for it because it is really rich content tra- trade that you have in there and and I love it how you do discern the ability behind once again getting to that authenticity right and, and and having it be a process where the CEO really owns they're not just delegating it, right but they're also getting input from people throughout the entire organization to help make sure that they get it there and and it's a once again this book it, it, it CEO doesn't it, it's a good solid, Read, but it's also a quick read. You, you've done a good job of having it flow through. I love the historical context you have in here as well. Not only of ancient history, actually, you bring in, but you bring in some context into you know a lot of current history. But that Enron part, and one of the things I liked about what you said is, um, I was with actually one or a couple companies where they very much purposely created their company because just like what you said, because they had. Re- did not like where they came from. That's what Hewlett Packard was, right? They were like, they, two guys yeah. got together and were like, we just want to create a company that fits our values and we'll figure yeah. out what to make so we can make money at the end of the day That's for right. it to continue, yeah. you know, but it was really about that. And a matter of fact, the company I was with, the company called Lightspeed Technologies, they had the best values of any company I ever worked with because they were so focused on, Lightspeed, matter of fact, had a connotation of what that word meant you know and so Perfect. everything about it was real and true and, and how they were trying to make a long-term authentic impact in the world and they really did it is a really great story okay so we're going to pivot kind of significantly in here because it's okay. the current part of you have plant your flag which is one of your blogs that you do you have a once again i i get a lot of content on a regular basis i only read a few Consistently, And Trey's is one of the ones that I pick up and read regularly. Very good content. That, okay, Web3. Web3 is the new oh, yeah. thing that's out there that's being talked about. It's been around for a little bit, but I'll always love it like when they said in the cloud, right? Now there is something that there's a coined phrase that they're using for something. It literally was in Robin Hood's uh, weekly newsletter as well at the same time Trey came out like almost simultaneously. Trey, describe to people what Web3 is.
0: So Web3 is the version of digital life that we are living right now, transitioning from Web2. And, 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 and you mentioned the newsletter that I put out, it's called Plant Your Flag, because I'm, what I'm doing is I'm researching these things for my own purposes, right? For the family office investment purposes or from you know, insurance industry or for consulting or whatever it happens to be. I'm researching topics that I think are going to be important to me selfishly in the future. And then I thought, you know, I process information much better if I if I really formalize it and get it written into like a one page or a two pager or something of that nature. So with that said, I just made that available to everyone if you want to sort of check my notes of what I'm reading and thinking about and that sort of thing. And sometimes they go long form and sometimes they're one paragraph and a conclusion and I get into some discussions and things like that. So that's the purpose of the newsletter. The, the Web3 piece that you're referring to came out this weekend, and it's because I'm trying to figure out, like, I don't fully understand this AI and blockchain and, and all of this kind of stuff. Is it real? You know, in NFT, what is that? And so I'm spending a lot of time sort of reading that. Well, I can't read books on it because they haven't been written yet, right? Because you have to write a book sort of with in the rearview mirror to some extent. And so uh, this piece specifically, what I tried to do is to orient myself because I'm a historical thinker. My degrees are in history and and I think that way. And so I said, okay, what was Web. Dot, you know, 1.0? What was the first version of the internet? What did that really look like? And and I worked in that. I worked at a company that became WebMD and did deals for WebMD and, and spent over a year or, or two or three years at WebMD working on those kinds of things. And what was that all about? It was about building websites you know that was a novel concept in 99 98 around that period of time well that gave way to not not went away but gave way and became something different which is web 2.0 and that's the internet that we think we are living in today we think that it's facebook and instagram and that sort of thing and it always will be right that's what we think you know who doesn't think that facebook right? You saw that they just recently rebranded to a a company called Meta. Well, they didn't do that as some PR sleight of hand. They did that because the focus of the company is going to be in Web3. So when I realized that, I said, well, I don't understand what Web3 is at all. I really better start getting my arms around it. And so Web3 becomes the answer to the objections that we have to Web2. And Web 2 was very much about, let me go join a platform, and then all of the data and my personal data, my spending history, my search history, all of the things that I am inputting into somebody else's platform become their property to be used, hopefully for good, but also against me. And in Web 2, I think this is the most important thing to understand the difference between the two. In Web 2, you are the property. You are the product right? Your eyeball looking at that database, interacting in that way, in a way that I can track your behaviors and then make predictions and sell that information to other people is the product. And they, it has created, you know, massive money, more commerce in the last 10 years than in all of human history squared. Absolutely amazing. Well, Web 3.0 is an, is an answer to that. And the answer is largely stop it. We're going to control our own version of who we are on the internet. And and we are going to do that. And this is one of the moments that clicked for me by establishing effectively property rights in our online behaviors. And those property rights are summed up in what we call tokens or what most people have heard of as cryptocurrency. So I didn't understand crypto at all. I thought this is some gambling and largely, I think there's a lot of that to the aspect today, but But cryptocurrency is literally little pieces of code that do certain things, but only if I tell them to do it and only in the ways in which I demand that it be done. And so if I want to transfer money today, I have to go and pay a $30 wire fee to my bank. My bank then goes and does some things that I don't know or understand. My bank can then sell the information of what I did to someone else if someone else is willing to pay for that information, subject to some privacy legislation, blah, blah, blah. With a crypto world, I simply buy a crypto token called XRP. I attach to that XRP the amount of money that I want to transfer to someone else. I send it to someone else. That someone else is the only person or entity that can utilize that token to get that money so the fraud goes out the window immediately and there's a lot of wire fraud in banking and and so that's a little sketch of how crypto just took over an entire industry of you know billions of dollars industry of transferring money left and right there's bitcoin that's you know personal transfer of value between two people there's uh ethereum which powers smart contracts and agreements and those kinds of things so that's what really comes about with the blockchain that we are able to secure property rights inside of commercial transactions and personal transactions and then layer on top of that the use of artificial intelligence to figure out problems that we don't have enough brain power to figure out and you've got uh, what i think is 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 what we will be living in and beginning to live in today, which is Web3.
1: I had a why I've been so intrigued by this is is, is like you, I same thing. I'm just fascinated by everything's going on. I, I for for a long period of time, I because it wasn't mainstream and I was like, well, how is the mainstream going to get to this? I was very skeptical, right? Skeptical of the future value behind what's taking. Same here. Place. Yep. And but then like firms like Robinhood came out, right? And all of a sudden, everybody could easily open up an account and then convert your U.S. dollars to, to something that was in crypto. And then therefore, right, you could then theoretically trade or buy with it because you had now a proxy, right? Because it, it was a little bit too esoteric, a little bit too complex, right, for the layman. Now we made it away. And the real trade, what surprised me is understanding that the greater the value is more important for the value to take place because it didn't have enough power when it was too small. But it, when it's bigger, like if, if Bitcoin gets to a half million dollars, Then all of a sudden, right? All those fractional shares are enough to actually have an impact on the currency transactions, and I think that's what people miss is sometimes is that the constraint of it is the real value behind it. That's why people have historically bought, purchased gold. But once again, it's not been easily tradable. But now, what you've described is something totally different. And I just want to share once again. I, I was brought into this. Paramark is one of the companies I work with. They stopped me in the middle of one of our sessions we had talking about their strategic plan. They said. Carl, you've got to take a look. They literally went into a virtual world. They showed how Sotheby's and and this is, and how they're auctioning off these NFTs in a world, how they're having DJs doing their, actually doing, showing music and people are going to a concert inside of this. It's fascinating how this is becoming real, very, very, very well quickly. And people are literally buying land, so to speak, virtual land, building cities on top of that. And then this is all being purchased. You can't actually get into it unless you have cryptocurrency to trade inside that world. And anyways, I thank you for giving more insight into Web3. I, I think this is going to be a um, continued learning part, once again, for all the rest of us right, who are in, inside of it. And if we don't capture it, we're going to get surprised right, in a negative way if we don't get um, along with what's taking place. That's my
0: fear is that we that you know that we will miss it because we don't understand it that it's new that it is uh, scary that somebody sees that Bitcoin trades here and then it trades there or something of that nature you know those kinds of things are scary and to your point earlier you know it, it, look throughout history any token that you would use for transaction is always valuable upfront because it's rare right but then the value ten x's when the rarity is made available to everyone. And I think looking back, I missed this, by the way, totally missed it completely. First of all, to your point, you couldn't buy these cryptocurrency. It was way too difficult to figure out how to do it. But those people that did figure it out received a very good return for the time and intelligence that they invested uh, in doing it. So I missed that one. I don't want to miss the next one. And so, so that's why I'm doing these pieces in, in Plant Your Flag, which is, again, a free newsletter if, if somebody wants to check it out. It's plantyourflag.live and uh, you just sign up and you get it whenever i feel like writing it is when it comes out so uh, when when it's ready to come out is when it
1: comes out and it's good As i said i really encourage you to, to to include that into it so you have all these different business ventures you have you know how ceo only does three things but from your perspective how do you measure success in in business ventures
0: i think my definition of that has changed over time although the core commitment underlying it i think does, hasn't changed. For me, you know, we run businesses so that the people who participate in those businesses is, can achieve some version of self-actualization, right? And this sounds sort of so, you know, 30,000 feet and, and maybe esoteric and that sort of thing. We, we want people to come to work in our companies so that they make a good living for their families and, and that sort of thing for sure. But if somebody comes to work with us and they don't grow as a person, into whatever version of the future person that they are supposed to be determined solely by them, of course. We're not very interested in staying in business with that person. You know, we, we don't like sort of this stuck in the mud and I'm not going to grow and I'm, I'm the perfect version of myself that I will ever be. And so when I began to be, be conscious of the fact that that was one of our value commitments, I began to really make that more explicit in our uh, planning processes in our sort of compensation processes and bonus processes and all of that uh, sort of thing and uh, you know we we tend to be a really good farm team uh, that grows people up who go on sometimes to to take other jobs with other organizations at a at a higher and better level and that sort of thing not often but when people leave us they only leave us for massive promotion you know, and, and that's very important to us. So, so really, and truly, how do I measure success? I get up every day and I sort of, I have my morning process and, you know, I do a values review. I have, I have, um, I have 13 core values that I live by and I do a values review every morning on those. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm very adept at it now that I can sort of scan through and say, Oh, I no, I messed this one up yesterday. And then I, I usually take an action to go fix what I messed up, if it's appropriate, and you know that sort of thing. So it's self-actualization, and I mean that by assessing: did I live my values today? That is success. Now, could I do that if I were, you know, sort of bankrupt and owing everybody all over town and that sort of thing? I guess maybe I could, but to me, there is a definition of you know, sort of first secure the home front, you know, make sure that you're financially able to do the things that you need to be able to do that you've committed to do. And then let's, let's make sure that we're living the values. The older I get, the more intertwined. I understand that those two things are.
1: Trey, we're going to, I'm going to have to have you a guess in another time because there are parts of what you talk about from compensation about getting people to be in the right spot. If you may write seat in the bus, but you go deeper than that talking about their traits and different levels of part And, and, but you described on that, that's part of what's describing your success, right? Is getting people in the right place where they're making contributions, making a real difference and you helping to foster that, you know, that, that, that to me, and the other part that you mentioned is you have these, I think you mentioned you have 13 core values. We do. So that's different than a lot of people, right? Because they'll have, they'll they'll hold themselves to three to five because somebody told them to do that. Well, that's not what Amazon does. It's not what Ray Dalio does, who can argue has the best cultures of anybody, of of modern day large companies in the world right now are those two organizations. And I appreciate how you've done that because you found that these things are so important on a consistent basis to do. So thank you. Anyways, thank you. And once again, maybe I'll be able to convince you to come on again, Trey, because uh, I, I love, I think it's so important for our audience and people to hear and learn about this. So I'm going to go down more to your personal side, but clearly everything's quite intertwined with you. 2005, you landed your dream job at AOL. That's You're how really old
0: ready- I am, by the way, Carl.
1: <laughs> my dream job was AOL. <laughs> <laughs> so a little shameful thing is I still have Carl J Consulting at AOL.com as an email address. So anyways, <laughs> and by the way, send me all you want. I get so much sp- spam out of that. It's not going funny. But what what ha- you had a crazy experience where you were getting ready, literally dream job, corporate transaction opportunities, M&A, and, and tell the audience what happened there because it's, it's a pretty profound story.
0: Yeah, it was a really sort of turbulent uh, time in my life anyway. So, you know, when the plane hit the towers, I was in the venture capital business and I was really good at it and loved it and uh, was all I ever wanted to do. And then, you know, some idiots make some decisions and uh, there is no venture capital industry, at least in Atlanta, you know, in the early 2000s. I mean, just evaporated completely completely. And we had spent our first fund and I was going to raise my second fund and it was just an impossible. So I had to move on. So I moved on to Earthlink, which was an ISP headquartered in Atlanta, sort of did a corporate development work with them, you know, plugging them into the VC community because VCs needed investment. They needed distribution, you know, for portfolio companies and that sort of thing. And a friend of mine left Earthlink and went to AOL and he called me two weeks later and he said, you know, this place is as good as Earthlink, right? The pay is better but they've got a job coming up that I can't imagine anybody else on earth can do as well as you can do it. And it was divestiture. So AOL had grown largely, you know, they went public and they used that public stock to buy hundreds of companies. They owned Huffington Post. I think they eventually owned Netscape. They owned, I mean, all of these web 1.0 companies that we were talking about, they owned them all, you know, and they actually made a... uh, they well maybe I shouldn't say that but they made a bid for another company that I worked for I don't know if that's confidential or not but you know they were really out there buying everybody that they could potentially buy. Well a new CEO comes in a new era dawns and and they're looking at it and they're saying why do we own these things why do we own the Huffington Post you know why do we own any of these you know, move, they own movie phones I mean you know why do we own these things so the new CEO came in and said somebody go find out which of these we need to keep that are core to the mission and somebody go sell the ones that are that are still here after or or sell the ones that we need to get out of. And I want a billion dollars, go raise a billion dollars through sales. And so that was the job that I got the call for. I interviewed and and the guy that interviewed me said it was the second day of interviews. He had interviewed 10 people or whatever it was. And he said, you've got this job. This is exactly who we need. As a matter of fact, we're going to, I'm going to see if I can get bumped up a title and all of this sort of thing. So I felt really pursued and I felt grounded for the first time where things were going my way that it was What you are doing, you're good at and other people recognize. And so that was good. So then I put my house on the market in Atlanta and I had to move to D.C. House wouldn't move. We're in the middle of one of these slowdown places. Interest rates are eight and a half percent. House wouldn't move. AOL calls and says, why aren't you here? And I said, I can't leave until my house sells. And I said, we'll buy it. What do you have it listed at? Knock 6% of it off. We'll buy it. And so I did. And so they literally bought the house and did whatever they I don't know, maybe they're headquartered there now. I don't know what they're doing with it. But, you know, my house is, is, is sitting there and the moving trucks are coming to pick my stuff up. And I'm headed to, to D.C. And I get a phone call. I was standing in the front yard and I get a phone call. And it's my mom. And mom and dad had gone to visit some family in uh, Las Vegas over the New Year holiday. And I knew that. And, and they had invited me to go. But I know, no, I have to do this. And, uh, and so mom said, hey, your dad's in the hospital. We had to put him in the hospital last night. And you know, it doesn't, it doesn't look good. Like something feels off about this. And I said, oh, okay. You know, well, the moving trucks are on the way. Let me know if I need to do anything. And I was sort of, you know, focused on a bunch of different things. And so she said, you're not hearing me. You need to be on a plane right now or you're not going to get to say goodbye to your dad. And so I had to drop everything, and my brother and I flew out to Vegas, and and we brought my dad back, not the way we wanted to bring him back. And, uh, and, and, And it was a real turning point because my dad owned the family company, and we didn't really have a good succession plan. He was 52. Carl, he died of COVID. We didn't even know what to call it at that point, but his death certificate says ARDS, which is the Acquired Respiratory Distress Syndrome that you get from being on the ventilator too long caused by SARS too so it's been oh, around yeah. all this time
1: yeah wow
0: yeah and we had no idea back then so that's just to put it in a little bit of context today and and so I came home for a short period of time I called my boss at AOL and said look I've had this thing happen and I got to go take care of this but I'm coming and then I never took the job because when I got to the company I realized that that I don't think it would have survived unless we had somebody involved that, really kind of knew how to run a business. My brother worked in the business, but he had never had the executive's chair. And so he didn't really know what to do and he'd he'd never watched anybody but my dad do it. And he was really in a a grief place that he couldn't have done it. So all of that fell to me to sort of pick up and pick up the pieces and do. And that was 16 years ago. And uh, it was definitely a culture shock because we live really in a rural part of America and uh, for me coming from living in new orleans and atlanta and living overseas at oxford and you know and having offices in in new york and pasadena and la and that you know it was just a really big culture shock for me and 16 years later i think i'm getting acclimated now
1: so that, that anyways first of all i think it's a fascinating part of right where where we think everything's heading one direction you had to make this significant change right because of what took place and and but now here you are, right? And 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 who would have thought, right, all this time later, here we are, 16 years later, you know, behind what happened took place. Anyways, thank you for sharing that. Cause I think it was to me is a big part or like reading about your book of how you ended up where you were, not necessarily fully intentionally, right? But it 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 took place and and you have found ways to expand in ways probably you never would have dreamed of, right? You know, if you were going Very down much. the original yeah. path that you're going towards, which I think is amazing. there's a couple of things you do with your life that I I think are pretty fascinating. You already mentioned you have a a morning process. And that was one of the questions I liked is what do you do to keep everything going? So how long is your morning uh, ritual, if you may, to help keep yourself grounded with all the things that you're balancing?
0: It's typically one hour and that's a sacrosanct hour. So my assistant knows that nobody gets me from eight 30 to nine 30 in the morning. It's, it's, it's time that I've got to spend with the guy that I spend the most time during the day with, which is myself. And, uh, you know, I've got to get grounded. I've got to do these rituals. I've got to go through and say, are you living your values? Are you the guy that you want to be every single day? And, you know, if you kick the dog or yelled at your wife yesterday, like it's not enough to take catalog of that. You have to go fix it, right? You don't let those things fester and become reality of who you are. And so that's part of it. I touch base with higher forms, for sure. I, I'm, a, I'm a Christian and I read the Bible every, every day. But I also reach for other types of literature. I read a 13th century Islamic poet, a Sufi poet named Rumi, every single day. And it opens doors for me that I don't find in other places into myself. I write when the, when the idea comes on me. If I've read a little bit of scripture and I've read a Rumi poem and I've read something else and the, they begin to coalesce, I pull out a journal and I, I, I don't do this every day, but I journal a little bit. Tommy is a, our, our mutual friend, Tommy Breedlove, huge journaler, right? As a matter of fact, I just sent him my copy of, uh, of Rumi so that he can incorporate that into his process. As well, So, yeah, I do that every single day. And the days that I, I can tell, I feel like, you know, queasy all day. And more importantly, my assistant definitely knows, but my wife knows. And sometimes my kids figure it out. Like, you know, what's up with you? You, you just, you know, you seem a little scattered or you seem a little quick to the trigger, which I tend to be anyway. So it's a very important process. And I, you know, I, I, I recommend it for everybody. But if I could mandate it, I would mandate it. Because if we don't take care of ourselves in doing this, then you know we aren't living as intentionally as we want to be, and therefore, you know, the reactions to the bad parts of life. I don't think you have an excuse. I don't think you can you can do that. My next book, as a matter of fact, Tommy and I, Tommy knows this as well, is going to be sort of that daily. You know, I don't know what you call it, devotional or something of that nature. But it's the idea of we're going to do soul work every single day, and mm. this is what that looks like. So that's my next book, I think.
1: I'm impressed by, you know, I, I try to do a lot of this actually in the morning, you know, like between, I, I wouldn't say I'm officially quote unquote, a 5am club person, but I try to consistently do it before everyone else gets up. I am I'm very impressed that you've been very intentional between the 8.30 and 9.30. Is there a reason why you've done that? Because that, that seems like that's a hard period to like take where so much business and life is going on, right? And that, that hour. So kind of what got you to that hour of the day?
0: So I have never understood someone who would brag about being up at four o'clock in the morning, <laughs> right? I, it's just not who I am. I'm a late night guy. I will, you know, I'll be on email, not as much as I used to be at 12, 12 o'clock and I go to bed at midnight every night. I, I read for an hour before I go to bed, you know, the wife and I have a TV or whatever we want to have the kids, you know, I read to them and, or we read together or we, watch television or whatever we choose to do together. And then I'm, I'm out at, 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 at midnight. If I only got four or five hours of sleep, I w- I'm useless. I'm absolutely useless. I know every man on earth, especially executives, want to brag about getting up at 5 a.m. and changing the oil in the car and all that. It's not me. It's not me. So I get up at uh, 7, 7.30, whenever my body wakes wakes itself. I don't sleep till 11. But you know, I I just wake up, I pay attention to the body, I get up, I have a coffee, help get the kids off to school, drop the kids to school, whatever the wife needs, and then come back. And the world is quiet for me from 830 to 930. And if somebody calls, I don't answer. I don't I don't text back. I don't do those things, you know, unless it's an emergency or the wife, you know, she's the one that gets it.
1: Trey, I appreciate you sharing that because there is, I, I think it's a misnomer to think that you have to do the 5 a.m. thing, right? If that if that works, you know what I mean? If that works for you, meaning different people are out there in the audience. You should do it. Yeah. Great. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That If that's your sacred hour, have it be so. But if you're someone like yourself, you, you normally go to bed at midnight, you're more of a night owl, it's going to make way more sense to you. But impressive that you've locked that away, right? Because that's, I think, the hard part is often... People want to have 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. business meetings, right? So you, you've you really decided that really you're not going to have a business meeting until 9.30, you know, often, right, with somebody 9 9.30 or 10, because you're going to make sure you have that hour to yourself. Absolutely. To your it, it, grounded. Yeah.
0: It's ironclad. And you know what I tell people? It's a Jedi mind trick. They say, can we meet at nine o'clock or something? They, oh, I have a recurring meeting that I cannot move from 8.30 to 9.30. No one asks what it is or who it's with or anything of that nature, they say, oh, he's unavailable from 8.30 to 9.30, no problem. And you know, not once has anyone been furious with me if I call them back at 9.32. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it doesn't matter what time you do it. It matters that you do it. And people who, who say to me, which all of my clients say to me, I can't afford, I can't find that one hour a day where I do that. I have clients that say, well, I do that, but I check my email. That's the hour that I do email. You know, well, you're not touching your soul if you're in email, period. And that's the point of that hour. Yeah.
1: So you, you helped me. I don't have to ask a question. I think I figured out now how you read that hundred hour, hundred books a year. You do that in the evening. <laughs> it sounds, seems like just, that's how you. I, I read all
0: the time. Yeah. yeah. We just put a, a, a rule in the house from eight to nine o'clock at night. The kids have to turn everything off and they have to read something. And I don't care what they, what they read it. They can't read it on a screen, so I won't let them do a Kindle until they've really got this habit built up and then they can But uh, yeah, that's, that's one of the hours that I spend. I spend an hour in the morning. I spend an hour now at night uh, with kids. And then I, I, I read a lot of other times. I'm a big taker of baths. I know that's what your uh, audience really wants to know. But you know, there's no, nothing better to me than having a bath and reading a book or something of that nature. I read on travel. All the time, I always have a book uh, or five going at at one period of time because I think you have
1: to. I like that actually. Bats are fantastic. Hot tub and the I read the other day on five a.m. 5 a.m. club that um, you should be getting two 90 minute massages each week, and I'm going to try to find a way to get that in the budget tray. I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't right
0: <laughs> the, the budget's the problem there for sure. You know, when I first took this, uh, took the job like we were talking about, I went to the local massage uh, spa and, and wonderful staff, and I said every Thursday at three o'clock, book an hour for or book an hour and a half for me. And if I can't take it, if I'm traveling, somebody will take it. And uh, and we did that for probably four or five years you know you, you do it until you stop you, it's working so well that you stop doing it and I wish I had kept that time slot because I could I could really use it.
1: All right so you I always like to ask the question this will be how do you measure success in your personal life You have the story um, about Mrs. Brownlee that you mentioned in your book, Trey. share a little bit more light about that because I think it's it is a great example how we could really truly measure success. Yeah so
0: so one initial thought uh, when you ask me uh, that question I, my reaction is why would i have a different measure of success in my personal life than i do in my business life mm. right it's if you're not having the same measure of success in all facets of who you are you are not an integrated person which means you don't have integrity mm. right this is a soapbox issue for me And so, uh, yes, at business, do I have numbers that I have to hit? Of course I do. I have those at home for my household as well. We live on a budget, and if we exceed the budget, then we all talk about it, you know? And and if we come in under budget, then we have a lot of parties or something like that. So, you know, yes, I have numbers in both places, but still, the point of my life, the, the reason that Trey was created was to help other people become the versions of themselves they're supposed to be. And so... In doing that, the story sort of reference point that I use for myself is my sixth grade algebra teacher who's uh, Madeline Brownlee. And, and Madeline Brownlee was 831 years old when I you know, first came into the sixth grade. I mean, she had been there for ever and she was actually the headmistress of the school but she still taught sixth grade algebra because that's what she loved, I guess. And she was a tough old bird, man. She had the old bouffant you know, cement hairdo She had these polyester pantsuits that you could like shoot bullets at, you know, and they would not damage the pantsuit. And her little gimmick or her stick or her joke was she had these little pins on her shoulder all the time, a butterfly, a roach. She had a roach pin and a bee and all these, you know, just little pins. And that was, that was her thing. And, and she was really tough. So I'm in the sixth grade algebra class and she says, "Uh, you know what we need? We need a homework monitor. And I can't think of anybody better than, then Trey Taylor, who's trying to find his way in middle school, <laughs> you know, that he should be the one to check everybody's homework. And it was terrible. I had to go ask my friends every day, did you complete the homework? I had to let Ms. Brownlee know if they did or they didn't and that sort of thing. And it was really terrible. And uh, there was, I, I remember specifically, we had a basketball team. We didn't have a football team. And if you if you didn't do the homework, you had to go to sort of detention, but it was study hall on a Friday afternoon. And if there was a basketball game that Friday night, you potentially could miss it if you were in study hall. So it was a lot of pressure on a little sixth grade tray to, you know, to not turn people in and narc them out and all that sort of thing. So one day I had had enough because I had to put the center, the basketball center on the list. And, and he was telling me, hey, man, be cool. Don't do this to me. You know, I thought it was terrible. So I, I went to Miss Brownlee and I said, look, I'm done. Like, I didn't want this job in the first place. I don't know why I have it. It's the worst job on earth. Why don't you give it to one of these, you know, nosy girls over here that love this kind of stuff? But I don't, I'm trying to be popular. And, and she said, Mr. Taylor, do you know why? You know, she did that thing that the teachers do where they look down their nose at the glasses. Do you know why I chose you for this job? And it flummoxed me. I No, I have no idea. And She said, because you know the difference between right or wrong. And it hit me like a you know, shot to the chest. I knew she was right. It was not anything that I had ever said to myself. And, and she came out with that. And I was sort of staggered by it. I still wanted to quit. And she pulled out yesterday's homework grid. And she said, you marked yourself no on this. And I said, yes, ma'am, I didn't do the homework. And she said, right and wrong matter in this world, Mr. Taylor. And we need people that know that. And then she sort of shooed me out of the, out of the office. I never once thought her about anything as long as I knew her after that, because I knew that she had seen something in me and called it out of me. I knew that she had my back. So I would walk down the hall and she would say, here's a new student. This is Trey Taylor. And he's going to take care of you in, in your new transition into our school. And I would, and those kids became friends that I have to this day. Five hundred years later, she said, "Why is your name not on the signup sheet for the student council?" And I said, "Because I wouldn't do that job if they gave it to me. Put your name on that list." I did. I am in politics to this day, at the state level in our home state of Georgia, at the community level in my home home city of Valdosta. She created and 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 called out of me some things. So here's here's the point of the whole rambling story. She taught me something. You can be a good leader. You can be a good CEO. You can obviously buy my book and you'll be a good CEO. That's not a guarantee. But what's the difference between a good and a great leader? A great leader is someone who sees gifts in other people. It's a a gift that we call preception. You see it in them before they see it in themselves. And then that's not enough. You have to go one step further. And one step further is called evocation. Comes from the Latin phrase ex voca, to call from within. You have to look and you have to evoke those gifts from that that, that person. And when she said to me, right and wrong matter, and you have the ability and not everybody does to see right and wrong when it's at play. That evoked in me a very powerful moral sentiment and vision of myself that I hold to this day. And that is our moral obligation as leaders. As CEOs, yes, but as leaders, and I'll go further to say as humans, you can go to Starbucks this afternoon and call from within a gift that you see being practiced by the barista, by the cashier, by the person writing the great American novel next to you. And I think we have to do that. And that's the job. And that's what self-actualization means to me. And that's what personal success means to me. And Madeline Brownlee taught me that in 1980.
1: That is an awesome story, Trey. And, and I think a great, once again, example, this what this, this podcast is all about, is right? Is, is to help show people how we can make a difference and and how we can measure that and i love that the story i think really helps shine that through and and this is what we hope we all are doing is inspiring other people and i love that how you had effectively an 887 year old lady you know joking here right who who helped install that and it had a difference to you today and you have friends from that person that you still to have today because of the interactions that she did for you and and we can Absolutely. never under, underestimate that so i love that so Always like to like our guests, what is a book? You know, you have a lot of books that you've personally read. Um, not recommending the book that I'm recommending to others, which is your book already, right? You know, CEO so only does three things. What is a book that you recommend our audience that um, you think would be good for this, this uh, for those who are out there?
0: So I do read a lot. You know, my goal every year is to read a hundred books. I've hit that goal for 20 years in a row. And I read a lot of bad books. And so I I kind of feel uniquely propositioned to say you know, what's a great book. There are a couple of books that I read every single. And one of them is, can I give you
1: four books? Is that okay? All right. I'll, I'll All right. make I'm the rules, Trey, but you're your the okay. only guest I know that has read consistently a hundred <laughs> books. I tried once to read hundred and I failed at 76. I think it was. So yeah, no, please, please share, share a few. The, okay. yeah. the,
0: the the number one book, and I, and I like how Tim Ferriss asked this question, like what book do you gift more than any other book? And for me, I gift man's search for meaning to any human who hasn't read it. Viktor Frankl uh, founded a school of psychology called Logotherapy, which literally ranks up against Freudian psychology and Jungian psychology. I mean, it's like the third school of psychology, and it's it's the one that works the best. And, And he really outlines the way that he had to keep that book alive in his head while he was in a concentration camp how do you find meaning in your life when you are surrounded by devastation of that magnitude? It is an emotionally touching book, but it is one of the most intellectually affirming books I've ever read. And I read it at least once a year, sometimes twice a year. It's my go-to when I'm going through something. That's the first one. The second one, nobody's read, it it, it wasn't a commercial success, it's a a real shame. It's called Making It All Work, it's a book by David Allen, David Allen, you'll remember wrote Getting Things Done, Mm -hmm. which I don't think is a good book. Making It All Work is a good book, and uh, unfortunately, I think the, the movement had passed by that point. I think it's one of the best sort of subject matter guides on how do you organize your life to become productive, to do the things that are creative. I have no doubt in my mind that this book will get a renaissance at some point when the creative class begin to understand that that this is how we orient the work that we do so that we can create and produce. It, I think it may even be out of uh, print now. I buy every copy i can I can buy of it and I give it to people. I don't know that they read it, but I give it to them anyway. And then third, not a shameless plug, but I'm really moved by the work that Tommy Breedlove has done in Legacy, or sorry, Legendary is his book, because it's about legacy. It's about, you know, you can literally make the intentional choice to live a life far outside of the parameters that other people are living, or far outside of what you think is possible for yourself, and it really starts in that choice, and I love the book. It's an easy read, and I've read it every year for the last three or four, years. and I've been fortunate to meet a lot of the people that he features in the book because of my association with him. But reading that book, it has literal case studies of people who have decided to go legendary in their life. And, and the challenge that he gives in the book is what if you did that one time? What would your life look like? And it's such a good and easy and, and authentic read that that's the third book sort of that I that I read every Every year, as far as we go right now, and the fourth, you know, is a book. Again, no one will ever read it. It's called *Cry the Beloved Country*. It's a novel that came out in the '60s, I think, about South Africa and apartheid. But it's uh, framed within the most heart-wrenching story of a of a country priest and his son who gets sentenced to murder. It is absolutely fabulous. I've read that book every single year since
1: 1988.
0: Wow, at least once a year. I bet I've read that book a hundred times. I don't really need to read it. you know, I can read it in my head <laughs> wow. right now. So wow. those are uh, that's one that you ask for in three uh, and three bonuses. When I live Carl in New Orleans, they have this concept of land yap. I don't know if you know this, but uh, like every time you get something in New Orleans, you get a little something extra. you get a little land yap. The Baker's does, and you get that thirteenth donut. that's that's some land yap here for your uh, for Love your it.
1: readers or for your uh, viewers. Love it. Love it. Trey, this is, this has been fantastic. Where can people find and learn more about it?
0: Easiest place is uh, the consulting is trinity-blue.com. My personal site is trey-taylor.com. Uh, the book has its own website as CEO only does three things.com. It's also available on Amazon. And uh, Carl, I'm pleased to tell you one of the first people that we've released it to, uh, it is now available on Audible. We had a lot of pressure to do Audible and i Didn't know that that was going to be such a thing. And it is. We sold 5,000 Audible copies last month in Japan. And we have not released it on Audible. We haven't promoted it at all. So doing very well as far as that goes. So I look forward to some success with that for sure. And then, uh, you know, the newsletter, if you really want uh, to sort of peel the onion back and see what goes on in the brain, plantyourflag.live.
1: Trey, this has truly been a pleasure having you on. I think this is our longest recorded session. We were talking about this ahead of time and, and, you know, very literally the meeting I had scheduled for the top of the hour, they canceled like as we were, I was getting ready to cut it off short. So I, I'm grateful that this happened. It's all intended to be. I love once again, the content, the information and the impact that you're making in the world. Thank you. So thank you, Trey, for being on the Measure Sess podcast.
0: Carl, thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. And I'm nothing if not long-winded, but uh, hopefully we've we've thrown some nuggets out there for people to, to take and use and improve uh, the lives that they have for themselves and the lives that they're creating for others.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much. And, and to all of those who are listening, we are wishing you the very best at measuring your success. Have a great day.
0: Thanks for listening
1: to the Measure Success Podcast. We'll see you again next time to learn from the best. Remember to subscribe now to get future episodes.